in this keynote, uh, Frank Ferretti is going to give a lecture on cosmopolitanism and sovereignty. Uh, what next for Europe? You know, Frank, um, sociologist, he's, um, he may have sold out of his latest book, What Happened to the University. Uh, if not, there are some left, uh, I imagine, at the bookstall. But a prolific author, uh, public commentator, uh, an important thinker. So thank you very, very much for giving us this lecture, Frank. The idea for this lecture uh, took shape a very long time ago uh, when uh, I, was doing a, I, was, I was in the middle of doing a lecture on the global world economy and about globalization. And I realized that what I was saying just didn't sound right. You know, I was holding forth about what a global world we live in and about how culture gets totally homogenized and globalized and how what happens to our lives here in England is as much affected by, by what goes on in the currency market in America as it is about what happened in China or in the Middle East. And I was kind of giving a fairly classical account of globalization as this kind of transcendental force that kind of dominates almost the minutiae of our life. And as I was saying it, I kind of realized that there was something wrong with what I was talking about. There was a, uh, a wrong way of formulating the problem. Because if indeed we do live in this omnipotent globalized world, if everything is more or less decided behind our backs by these invisible forces over which we have absolutely no control, then of course our very uh, capacity as human beings to do anything or to assume responsibility for anything and live with the consequences of our action is totally diminished. And not just as individuals do we have very little control over our everyday affair, but our governments, our, our nations, our communities also become these puppets that are more or less you know, sort of uh, run by these, these kind of invisible forces. So that's really when I began to think about it. And I became more and more interested in this issue because I've noticed that in a, a lot of the debates on political theory and particularly debates around Europe, the fatalistic consequences of these theories of globalization have really emerged in a very powerful way, where increasingly it's being suggested that uh, national sovereignty is not only uh, a myth, not only does it have no real meaning in the 21st century, but also it's suggested to be interested in national sovereignty is to make a, a big mistake, because you're attempting to use institutions that are outdated, that are emptied of meaning, to solve problems. And as I began to look further and further, you also begin to realize that what you have increasingly is, an, is a kind of new political theory where national and nationalist or community-based thought and traditions are seen as being negative, and what's called cosmopolitan or globalist or non-national or transnational are, are kind of portrayed as being ipso facto positive. There's a kind of counterposition that's really built up. And if you look at some of our leading philosophers in Europe, someone like Jürgen Habermas, the German political theorist, or the sociologist Ulrich Beck, who's passed away, they all claim that it's essential for us to transcend the limitation of national boundaries by adopting a, a pro-European union and cosmopolitan vision. And the word cosmopolitan has really entered the political vocabulary. And a lot of people 
see themselves as being uh, cosmopolitan. Now, I think we've got to be very careful about how we use the term, because until people began to use the word cosmopolitan in its current uh, sort of uh, way, I used to think of myself as a, a cosmopolitan. I, I used to think that being cosmopolitan was like being a human being that loved the world and a man of the world, like traveling. You know, I, I thought it meant something to do with being open to new experiences and, 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 and learning from other societies and other cultures. And I kind of adopted, particularly you know, in my own thinking in the past, Immanuel Kant's version of cosmopolitanism, which really was a, a part of the Enlightenment attempt to discover and find out what is common to us as human beings, what is the essence that binds us together as, as human beings. Today, the meaning of cosmopolitanism has changed. Cosmopolitanism today is used very instrumentally as a medium, as a policy medium, for solving the issues thrown up by globalization. And in particular, cosmopolitanism is used in order to displace national by transnational solutions. It's also interesting that increasingly cosmopolitanism is used as a way of legitimizing the role of international institutions and what are called cosmopolitan intellectuals and experts. So it's interesting that the world we live in, international institutions like international NGOs or international courts or even the World Bank often seem to have greater legitimacy because they're international than nationally based institutions. It's an interesting development that somehow we, we assume that just because an institution is international, it's less disinterested, it's more neutral, it more, it's much more interested in helping the whole of humanity rather than these very narrow national institutions who we increasingly portray today as having a very selfish, almost xenophobic uh, sort of agenda to it. I mean, my argument is, is that today's technocratic advocacy of cosmopolitanism is both anti-political and also often anti-democratic. And I think it's interesting that some of the early advocates of, of cosmopolitanism in its current form are themselves self-consciously anti-political. For example, the Hungarian thinker George Konrad wrote a book in the 1980s called Anti-Politics. It's, it's a book that I recommend people read because anti-politics really summarizes at a very early stage some of the arguments that we hear in the debates on cosmopolitanism today. And this is what Conrad argues. He says, it appears that the intelligentsia, not the working class, is the special bearer of internationalism. They're better attuned to the world than those who only study for eight years. So the argument is, is that uh, a cosmopolitan intellectual, who because they are university trained, because they studied for presumably 16 years as opposed to just 18 years, have now become this new, uh, new vanguard or, or, or new leader for society. And that what their role is, what the cosmopolitan intellectuals need to do, is to hold in check the culturally or the religiously or the nationally based aspiration of the public. Now, when you take a step back from his conceptualization of what it means to be a cosmopolitan, and you compare that to that of Immanuel Kant, who theorized about cosmopolitanism back in the late 18th, early 19th century, we're talking about something very different. For Kant, cosmopolitanism expressed an aspiration 
to establish some kind of world government. I don't think he necessarily meant world government literally, but basically a move towards uh, solutions that, in a sense, expressed our human essence in a, in a, in a, in a global kind of a way. I mean, for him, uh, uh, that's what it meant. It was a, a positive attempt to realize our human potential in a kind of truly global sense that transcended the particular parochial limits of our everyday life. Today, cosmopolitanism is mainly driven not by the positive uh, attempt to kind of realize that human essence, not that universalistic desire to see what is it that makes us human, what, you know, what, how do we think as human beings, how do we kind of get there? It's much more driven by what is a dislike or hostility towards national sovereignty, nationalism, and to the nation state. And the main value that cosmopolitan theorists celebrate and put forward is the value of diversity. And the question you ask, well, why, why is it that people who are cosmopolitan, who want to see some kind of global solution, why is it that they also want diversity? You know, why is it that they're particularly interested in difference and, and value it and celebrate it? And it's interesting, because like, when you look at uh, the concept of diversity, and we've talked a lot about diversity over the last few days, it's always in the news, politicians always go on. I mean, every mission statement of every business that I've seen has got diversity as a core value. And every political statement that you read about the future talks about diversity as if it's like the most wholesome, something, a, a virtue that's intrinsically good in and of itself. What's also interesting is there are very few books written on diversity. You know, if you want to understand the theory behind diversity, you really have to struggle very, very hard. If you go to a library, you'll find that very few people have actually taken the time to explain to us what diversity is and what it's really all about. In other words, diversity has become this taken-for-granted concept that we know is good in and of itself. Now, I happen to think that diversity is a good thing, you know, but that's neither here or there in terms of what I think. But what is interesting is that the way that diversity is used and celebrated, particularly by cosmopolitan uh, uh, thinkers, is not for the positive celebration of our human differences and trying to learn from each other and, 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 and thereby advance and move forward. They basically see diversity as somehow the counter to the nation state. That diversity is good because it dissolves the homogeneous aspirations that are contained within the public life, within a nation. And what they like about uh, diversity is that it's, from their point of view, it's the polar opposite of what they see as a homogeneous national culture. In other words, diversity is good because unlike a French political culture or German political culture or British political culture, it makes no claim to be homogeneous. It, it treats everybody and different communities in a differential uh, kind of a way. And what's important about diversity is that by calling into question the aspiration for homogeneity, and we, can ha we have a discussion of what we mean by homogeneity, it doesn't necessarily mean sameness in terms of physicality or any particular thing. What is interesting about it is that 
what diversity seeks to target is the national. And what they object to in the national, not that it's national, but any national homogeneous culture is by definition rooted in some kind of historical past and some kind of historical tradition. So what I'm really trying to suggest is what cosmopolitanism you know, sort of objects to is not so much simply the nation or, or nationalism or national sovereignty, but the fact that any national culture, any exercise of national sovereignty is legitimated by its linkage to some kind of past historical tradition, a certain set of values. And I think it's this uncomfortability of cosmopolitan theory with historical continuity, and it's this imperative of cosmopolitan theories to break with the tradition of the past that is really what's driving uh, the, uh, th this particular ideal. In other words, what I'm suggesting is what cosmopolitan theory tries to do is to decouple a majority culture within society from a particular cultural tradition. It's almost as if the pre-political past, the cultural past within which we lived in, needs to be left behind. The, 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 the basic uh, sort of values and cultural norms that have been created and, and reproduced over the generations need to be, to some extent, marginalized. And instead, what we need to opt for is not the continuity with the achievements of a particular nation in, in the past, and to give that real expression, what we need to do instead is to reproduce that with process, with, with new rules, with new laws that we create ourselves in a cosmopolitan world. In other words, it's the dissolution of national cultures that is the main accomplishment, the main target of cosmopolitan theory. I think what's interesting about cosmopolitanism is that in the course of doing that, in the course of trying to negate uh, the nation or national sovereignty, and by trying to invoke the importance of, of the cosmos, which you know, does have this kind of transcendental ideal about it, what they're also doing is privileging and, and celebrating diversity and difference, to the point at which the hostility that cosmopolitan theory has towards the nation is almost contradicted by the love that they put forward towards the regions. And that's really what happened within the European Union itself. It's an interesting development that the more we seem to have outwardly integrated into cosmopolitan Europe, the more we live in a world that's more regionally uh, sort of separate, where cultural differences have become far more pronounced than previously, where different kind of identities within the nation have acquired a greater definition. And we have this interesting development where despite the cosmopolitan evocation of us being truly global, we somehow have gotten into a world where we talk less to each other, where we're becoming more compartmentalized, where instead of a kind of universalistic uh, sort of culture evolving within Europe, what you've got are, is almost like the reemergence of 19th century particularisms, where the particularities become extremely powerful and influence everyday culture and society. 
And that's the interesting development that has occurred. On the one hand, you have abstract cosmopolitanism, which uh, targets the nation state and national sovereignty on the grounds that these are horrible ideals. But at the same time as doing that, you have the recreation of little nationalisms, tiny nationalisms, identity-related nationalisms, and forms of identities that are extremely uh, sort of uh, fragmented and compartmentalized. And that's something I think you know, we all need to think about. Just one final point. I'll, I could go on and on and on about it, but just one final point is that in many respects, the anti-national sovereignty focus of cosmopolitan theory at the moment is also inherently anti-democratic. And the reason why it's anti-democratic is because, whether we like it or not, the world that we live in is one where our capacity to be active citizens, our capacity to be active subjects, our capacity to change the world for the better depends on us having a relationship between us and some kind of institution that is accountable to us. I think accountability is absolutely essential. It's one of the key elements within democracy, not the democracy of process, but real lived democracy. We cannot be able to hold our politicians, our representatives to account. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, no matter what our visions are in terms of, of, of the world, whether we like it or not, the only framework within which democracy can work, within which accountability can have that kind of meaning, is through the exercise of some form of popular sovereignty. And the only way that popular sovereignty can have any institutional, institutional expression is through the, uh, the, 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 the formula and the institutions of national sovereignty. And therefore, to be for national sovereignty and, and, the, and the importance of national sovereignty isn't this kind of abstract love of nation, isn't because one wants to particularly be nationalistic, isn't a desire to be xenophobic or narrow-minded. The importance of national sovereignty has got to do with the very simple fact that it's in only in that context that human subjectivity, our capacity for agency, our transformative potential can have any real ultimate meaning. And that's why, at the end of the day, I argue that cosmopolitanism violates the Kantian principle of a truly universalistic outlook. It violates the important emphasis that Kant placed on the ideal of autonomy, where we recognize the importance of exercising subjectivity and therefore taking responsibility for not just for ourselves, but for the future of the world. It violates all those kind of principles. And instead, what it ends up with is a kind of worst scenario where the excesses and the, and, and the, uh, and, and the limitations of, of nationalism are reproduced in a much more intensely conflictual form with the potential of creating all the harms that were associated with nationalism in the past, but without any of the good things that nationalism in some situations has managed to achieve. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Frank. Um, three things for me, three questions, well, lots of questions for me, actually, but I'll restrict myself to, 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 to three so I don't get in the way of 
all the better questions that will be coming from you. But um, where you started on globalization and that sort of fatalism thing and the shift in meaning and cosmopolitanism away from sort of traveling and getting experiences, being a man of the world, towards this behind-your-back uh, <clears throat> imposition, if you like. It's slightly difficult to understand, isn't it? Because originally cosmopolitanism had an association with a sort of, not with diversity, which is your point, but with a sort of empty universalism. It was a sort of a fatalistic response to Roman Empire, you know, the original Stoic view of, I'm a citizen of the world, you can't get me, I'm a citizen of the cosmos, you know, there's a narrow little space in which somebody has power by withdrawal, that sort of fatalistic sense, but you seem to be pushing cosmopolitanism more towards the values of diversity rather than an empty universality, can you comment on that? Well, I, I think there's always a danger that the three concepts, which is universalism, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism, uh, become emptied out of meaning, you know, because they, they can become Sunday school speechifying. And, you know, more, eight times out of ten, or nine times out of ten, they just become, you know, like, empty without any kind of real consequence or content. But I do think one of the things, certainly, uh, I've learned through my work on history uh, particularly in, in a book I wrote on the, on the history of the idea of authority, there's a, there's a kind of a human impulse, it, 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 or traces of it go back to the Greeks, and it kind of continues onwards of a desire to, to build something that kind of transcends the, the limited particular vantage point within which we live. And I happen to think that's a really positive thing. I think it's, I think it's great that we want to transcend our own individual experiences, and I think it's great that we realize that there's more than one way of skinning a cat and that you know, other people can teach us a lot of different things. And I think it's also curious that from the Egyptians onwards, philosophers have always looked for what is common to us. I mean, that's, you know, and, and it's taken different forms. The, the establishment of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, you know, working class international in the 19th century. I think all of those had some really positive elements to that, and I think that to that extent, the Kantian idea of cosmopolitanism had some very important redeeming features. I think slightly idealistic as well, but had some redeeming features, whereas today, you know, uh, I think that what's coming out is that the negativity, it's, it's the hostility to uh, a particular nation or to national identity, it's the, and which is really a hostility to the traditions of the past. Now, I'm quite happy to uh, engage and criticize the traditions of the past. Not all of them, because some traditions are good, some of them are, are not so good. But if we're doing that, then let's do it openly. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, I think it's the democracy deficit that's really quite important. Because you know, where I come from, uh, you know, I, I don't think that an international organization, no matter how good it is, is a democratic organization. I mean, you know, I might like Médecins Sans Frontières for some of the stuff they're doing, but it's not a democratic organization. I think you know, the doctors that work for Médecins Sans Frontières do what they want to do. You know, they don't ask my permission, they don't consult me, they're not accountable to me. Whereas my local Tory MP, with whom I totally disagree, is at least accountable to me. I, c I can vote to get rid of her if I want to. And I got a, a relationship, at least in the abstract, which you can only have within the context mm. of a nationally sovereign 
institution. Does that <clears throat> that process? I mean, you, the historical examples there of the um, Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, um, men working class internationalism. I mean, those seem to be processes. This is around the homogeneity and diversity question. Those seem to be processes of extending the sort of boundaries of people like us to be broader, to say, you know, we have a way of living and we'd like more people to live that way, which is sort of reducing the amount of diversity in the world. Is that the right way of looking at it? And if, if so, I mean, that seems a good thing to me. I think the, all the world should be more sort of like us, um, you know, in some ways. Um, is that the right sort of way of looking at it? And if so, what explains the sort of perverse, in a way, antipathy towards homogeneity that you, you call out? Because that seems to be a form of, of self-hatred, of hatred of people like, like us, or is that not the right way of looking at it? Well, I, I think the progressive uh, story on homogeneity and diversity is that you do want more and more people to be like us. But as you want more and more people like us, you want to be not like us anymore. Because I think in the very act of coming together, you know, we change who we are. And that's the nice thing about human history, is that as we interact and engage with each other, we become different types of humans. You know, we, we're no longer like what we were in the previous generation. We've kind of transcended that. And, and, the, and to me, the enlightenment ideal that was, was kind of being put forward is that as we become more capable of exercising reasoning, and interacting in a, in a reasonable kind of a way. So the old differences get extinguished, but obviously new ones will be created. I think that's the buzz. The real buzz is that as we become uh, engaged with each other, as we, as we have communication with each other, as we transform ourselves through that, we create what are new forms of differences. But these differences will develop along lines that you and I cannot predict at the moment. They don't necessarily have to be differences of identity or differences in, in, that are naturally and, nationally and culturally based, but they could be as important to the future generations as identity is to people in the here and now. You mean the, sort of the process of <clears throat> civilizing the world in this analogy, making it more the sort of world that people like us want to live in, creates a bit more civilized world which demands a different response than it did before. Yeah, uh, Habermas, uh, in his uh, work on cosmopolitanism, argues that the, that the job of European political theory is to civilize the Germans, or to civilize the French, or to civilize Europeans by weaning them off their national identity. So the whole idea is you, you basically um, civilize, they, they have an expression they use in Germany called constitutional patriotism. And what constitutional patriotism means is that your affiliation is no longer to a culture or to a community, but it's the, to, the, to the rules that have been, you know, it's, it's basically, it's a patriotism of, of, of process. You, you sign up, these are the rules, and that's what we identify with. So for him, the way you and I become civilized is by being less who we are and much more, you know, sort of, I, I, as I see it, template-driven, you know, sort of kind of... It's in, the opposite in, approach. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, whereas for me, civilization, the civilizing element, is to also to transcend who we are, but not by, you know, because basically, you know, 
progress always depends on being able to see things from beyond your narrow limitations, but in, in a way that we, we don't just simply deny who we are, but we, and it's the old idea of transcendence, but given in a secular form, if that makes any sense. Well, one last thing. I'm going to sort of shape this out around the European question because that was the specific focus here. What next for Europe? And you know, how can we have a cosmopolitan attitude post-Brexit towards Europe? So, you know, in the blurb uh, for this session is a you know, compulsory quote from, from Juncker, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, saying, um, you know, borders are the very worst invention of politicians, which says something of his own self-regard if he thinks borders were invented uh, by politicians rather than established <laughs> by people uh, through, through history uh, um, um, uh, in many ways. I mean, it, it, it does seem to have you know, the opposite you're describing, the opposite process, the uh, de-civilization of the world, which you know, inflates the petty differences, the tiny nationalisms uh, that you were talking about, seems to be entirely inimical to that project of living together as Europeans. The, the contrary logic, it seems to me, of the EU... Uh, seems to unsettle uh, people's way of living together as Germans, as French, and work against the possibility of them um, uh, uh, creating a shared European project. I mean, the EU, I'm sure they don't understand this, but but everything they do seems to undermine the possibility of a settled way of life in Europe. Well, I I think that uh, for there to be a genuine European, you know, sort of sharing of experiences and values you need to, uh, in a sense, transcend the procedural Europeanness of the European Union. Because to me, the main problem with the European Union is that it's, it's trying to substitute rules and regulations and process for what are cultural and values-related issues. And I think one of the, to me, one of the most, you know, sort of, uh, kind of clearest expression of this, if you ever go to Brussels, you should go to the European Museum of History. And the European History Museum is built in such a way that history begins in 1945, because you want to forget about what Europe was like before 1945. And the idea is, is that you know, our history, it's, it's not really a history, it's, it's, a, it's a separation from the past by imagining that history begins with the, you know, sort of the European steel and coal community being established and the rules of that community constitute what, what is called in political theory the moment of foundation. You know, every society begin, is built on foundation, like the founding fathers in America. Uh, their constitution is the moment of foundation. In Rome, it's the uh, myth of founding that, you know, that comes through the Aeneid kind of uh, mythology. That's the moment of founding. In Europe, the moment of founding becomes a document about economic cooperation between France and Germany. Not exactly a robust foundation for us being European mm. together. 